Alrighty, everybody, welcome to the Godcast. Today we will be talking about a philosophy that has influenced every religion, pretty much. Okay, that 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 can be a bit of a, a bit of a generalization, but this this philosophy has influenced the likes of Christianity, Islam, the Baha'i Faith in the cosmological area, uh, the Druze, another. Um, well, it's a religion that was inspired by and came out of uh, Ismaili Shia Islam, and even occultism uh, is inspired by Neoplatonism. And I think you will find uh, this, you know, relatively brief research episode very fascinating because we get to see how Neoplatonism has influenced both the largest religion on Earth currently, Christianity, and has influenced some smaller religions. In fact, a closed religion, a closed, uh, you know, ethno-religious group uh, called the Druze. So let's jump into this. Uh, so, uh, Rylan, take it away. How did Neoplatonism start, and uh, who was there at the beginning, and what what are a quick glimpse at some fundamental ideas? Right. All right. Well, let's start. Um, why is it important? And you kind of already talked about this. Uh, it influenced many religions: uh, Jews, Gnostics, Christians, Muslims many religions so that's why it's important to understand it it helps it helps to understand the backbone of a lot of these religions so first let's talk about platonism platonism is a branch of greek philosophy originating from plato uh 438 bce to 347 bce uh but it went through some major changes after the death of plato um until it became what is now known as Neoplatonism, which actually wasn't coined as a term until the mid-19th century. Uh, all right, so uh, Neoplatonism is a lot more religious than Platonism, uh, and it sought to counter many of Plato's ideas. And one of these is Plato's idea of the uh, dual view of life, meaning thought versus reality, ideal versus form. It kind of sought to uh, build on that and change change that a bit. Um, and then in contrast, Neoplatonism put more emphasis on the one, or uh, also known as God in Christian Neoplatonism. Um, so, yeah, right, it, it added on to a lot of ideas. Uh, and then also, so it's important to understand Platonism too. And one... Plato's main was the theory of forms, which is, okay, this is key to understand Neoplatonism. Um, so the theory of forms, it's a theory that states that there exists an immaterial universe of what are known as forms. Uh, and these are perfect versions of everyday objects and like human emotions and thought. So like a table or like a pencil, there's a perfect idealized form of that uh, in the immaterial plane. And that's what they're based on. That explains the reason why not uh that's it kind of explains why life is imperfect and why uh imperfections exist so um to better understand neoplatonism uh this quote by plotinus who was a philosopher uh helps to highlight its goals so he said the absolute has its center everywhere but its circumference nowhere so he basically means that god is the center of the universe uh, and is all-encompassing, yet has no bounds and no limits. Um, all right. Now, I touched on this earlier, but Neoplatonism went through three major stages of influence. Um, they're based on three Neoplatonist philosophers. The first, Plotinus, 
uh, and then uh, Porphyry. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Por Porphyry, something like that, um, and Iamblichus. So first, uh, Plotinus. So he he was responsible for like the synthesis of Plato's ideas uh, with those of Christians and Gnostics and Jews, uh, and he answered answered the question of how an inferior and flawed universe could be created by God, yet God is perfect in all ways. So he argued that, uh, similar to Plato, God is what is known as the immaterial. So God is perfect. He's the immaterial form. Um, and that his creations are material. So therefore, they're, they're not perfect, but they're based on the idealized version of, of the form, which is God, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and then Plotinus also claimed that human souls had a perfect, divine, and immaterial form, uh, while on Earth it is imperfect and material. Uh, this also explains why there's uh, human error and why there's evil, because humans aren't perfect. All right. And then uh, Porphyry was the second main uh, stage. He influenced Neoplatonism. He was the second philosopher. Um, he was also the most famous of Plotinus's students, and he was interested primarily in the process of um, how a soul could reach higher realms of existence or how a soul can uh, enter the divine realm. Uh, he also believed in what is known as good works, uh, similar to Christianity. Um, and this can be explained by him being a Christian uh, in his life. Um, he also believed that reaching salvation was a gradual process, not instant. Um, and, uh, this was also proposed by Plotinus. All right. And then finally we have Iamblichus or Iamblichus, uh, who is the final, the third philosopher. He was a student of Porphyry, uh, before him. And he believed that there existed a supreme one, even higher than Plotinus's the one or AKA God. Uh, and the supreme one, according to, uh, Iamblichus, uh, was responsible for what he called the intellectual cosmos, um, which he also stated was beyond human comprehension. And this is when things get fuzzy. Uh, but he argued that the human soul could be split into three parts made up of one cosmic soul and two lesser souls. Um, and then he also believed that the relationship of humans to God was a subordinate one. So humans serve God. And this was in, this was contradicting Plotinus, who believed that he, he said that gods should come to humans rather than the other way around. And that's all I got for history. So, you know, the philosophy of Neoplatonism, now that we have, you know, we've already had Ryland touch on what exactly the historical details of Neoplatonism were, you know, now let's talk about the philosophy a little bit more. So, it's, it is absolutely imperative that when we look at a Neoplatonic diagram, we do not view this as a literal cosmological scheme. When we look at diagrams of the universe, right, it, we might say, okay, or from a theistic perspective, we'll say, okay, here's Earth, then here's the heavens, then here's God. And actually, what, what, what happened in the Middle Ages, and we'll get into that a little bit later, is people did start to use, you know, Neoplatonic thought a little bit more literally and use it and use an inverted version of sort of the diagram of the universe for like actual, like, like, an, for like an actual literal diagram of the universe. But it's absolutely imperative that when we, when we use Neoplatonic terms, we don't think of these as separate realms of existence that literally exist, 
Like, for example, when I use the term the world soul, don't think of us going into a cloud or something. And when I think of the divine mind, don't think of, of, of us going inside of some, you know, otherworldly consciousness, spacey realm. Don't think of it like that. Think of these more as states of mind as opposed to literal realms. So what exactly does this aforementioned cosmological scheme or rather incorrectly named cosmological scheme look like? What does the chain of being, we should say, the great chain of being look like? So firstly, we have the one. The one is also referred to in the you know Pythagorean uh, n- numerological system as monad. Um, you're also going to see this in Gnosticism, right? So God is referred to in you know later Sethian Gnosticism. It's going to be influenced by Neoplatonism. So we're going to use the word the term monad is going to be used to describe the Gnostic God in that context. So first there is monad. This is the highest. Um, chain of being this doesn't mean it's it's a it's a universe the highest universe this means it's the highest state of being essentially what are the characteristics of the of the one of monad monad is indivisible and simple so we're not going to be able to divide monad into parts um monad is simple right where this we're, this is not a complex being this is i guess you could say and i think i think if, if, if plotinus or plotinus was here in the room he'd He'd probably, you know, not be very happy with me saying this, but I guess you could kind of say the one is almost like the, it's almost like the most simple thing possible, but we can't view it as a thing. We can't, we, we shouldn't even be using the word it really. The, you know, it, it's, it's neither immaterial. I mean, it is immaterial, but it, it's, it's not like we can, we can place a finger on it. In fact, Plotinus even said that it was not, it was neither in motion, nor was it stationary. So it's. In fact, what's really interesting about, you know, in later Christian thought, you're going to have people describing the Trinity, right? With the Trinity is not this. The Trinity is not that. Or God is not this. God is not that. By using basically negatives to describe a a thing or a concept. And that actually, um, in some ways, has its earliest groundings in Neoplatonism. So, you know, the one is totally good. And the one is totally powerful. And the one is the source from every from which everything emanates and emanationism is a term we're going to get into and the but the one is not god so what rylan touched on earlier is that you know in in christian thought the one is equated with god that's true you're going to see guys like pseudo dionysus and other christian intellectuals come out and say you know we're going to equate the one with the father um or perhaps even the trinity i think pseudo dionysus i could be incorrect but i believe that he re- equated the one with the trinity um, other thinkers would equate um, Jesus with the world, uh, with the divine mind, and the Holy Spirit with the world soul. A lot of early Christian thinkers, you're going to have guys like Origen, you're going to have guys like Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Maximus the Confessor, and even later figures like uh, Saint, like, like, like John of Damascus, um, who, is, who is a monk uh, more known in the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, these guys are these church fathers, although, I don't, although he wasn't really... I actually think that um, uh, John of Damascus was a, a doctor of the church, but not a church father, but the, the early church fathers, right? These guys from, I, I'm guessing, around you know, maybe, the, maybe the 6th century at the most to you know maybe the 4th the, the or I guess the 4th century around that at the least, these guys were deeply immersed in Neoplatonism. So, but let's not get off on a tangent like I, like I was getting off on onto one we, we can talk about it later 
So what, what happens, right, is the one is equated with Yahweh. The one is not, but the one is not all-knowing, though. What's very important, we have to understand that in, in the view of Plotinus or Plotinus, the one is not all-knowing. God is all-knowing in the theistic sense, but not the one. Not Plotinus is the one. God is impersonal. Okay? God is impersonal. This is not a God who's going to answer any prayers at all. This is a God who is, um, in air quotes, floating out in the ether. If you can even imagine it that way. Although, like I said, don't view this as a heavenly realm. View this as a state of being. This God transcends existence. The one, rather, transcends existence. Also, the one is not a mind, right? This is not some mind floating out in the ether. Again, I even caution uh, using that kind of language. The one is not in motion, not in, in stationary. In fact, Plotinus or Plotinus, he wrote pages upon pages of what the one is not. So you can imagine that. Um, emanationism, the one... Go, the one does not create things, right? But actually, quote-unquote, gives them off. Similarly to how the sun naturally exerts rays. Let's talk about what those emanations are. So this would be in our, of course, our uh, the great chain of, uh, of being. Actually, the great chain of being is a bit more general. I'll get into that a little bit later. But in terms of the structure of Neoplatonic thought, you're going to have, of course, one, right? That's obviously um, the one. And then the emanations are, firstly, the first emanation is the divine mind. The second emanation is the world soul. The third emanation is the universe. And the universe contains, and this is really, a, a, um, this, this also becomes kind of imperative in uh, middle eight, medieval thought. The star, or the universe has, you know, firstly the stars, then humans, then animals, then fish, then insects, then plants, then rocks. Okay. After all that, that's part of the universe, right? The lowest layer of everything is matter. Now, matter is not a physical matter, right? I knock on a table there. That's not actually going to be the matter Plotinus was talking about or Plotinus was talking about. This is rather the limit, the limit of the productive power of the one. This becomes equated with how later. But what's interesting in, in, um, in thought, right? In, in uh, you know, med med medieval thought, um, people see this sort of diagram invertedly, and they equate uh, matter or the universe with Earth. Um, which would be kind of a misnomer if they equated matter with Earth, but I think they sort of do. There's the chain of being. Remember how I talked about that earlier? So firstly, there's the super being. Uh, this contains the infinite, right? The one is the only infinite um, being in this sense. Secondly, we have being itself. Uh, and also the one is not a being, so that was actually incorrect. I'm sure Plotinus wouldn't be happy about that. But secondly, we have being, which is finite, and that is the you know divine mind, the world, soul, and the universe. These are all finite emanations. Sub-being, this is the third part of the great chain of being. This is the limit of existence. Okay, this is the limit of existence. Um, also, something that I wanted to talk about Plotinus really quickly is that, or Plotinus, was his... One of his ways that he would get these ideas was he would he would meditate and he would go into like trances. He was he really wanted to create a real, a religious system that made sense rationally. He actually was a critic of Christianity because he didn't like how Christianity was faith based. That was one of his criticisms. But one of his ways that he would. Um, his mind would ascend, and that's actually one of the points of Neoplatonism. I'm going to talk about 
that actually, if not the quote unquote biggest point of Neoplatonism, uh, is you know the ascension of the soul and the way that Plotinus' soul would ascend, the way that he would go ascend this great chain of being was seeing everything in unity. He would see everything in unity, and that would allow the soul to rise. So how does the how did the soul fall in the first place? Well, the soul was 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 from a quote, a quote a more heavenly place, but now exists in the body. Actually, Plotinus viewed souls as minor gods that fall, that voluntarily plunged from the world soul. Right, this is the origin of souls. Uh, I believe the world soul is my understanding. The world soul is it's kind of like the um, it's kind of like seeing everything in unity. But I could be incorrect about that. Um, that's my that that's kind of what I. Um, gather uh, and, and then the soul descends into the material world as a result of its tendency towards chaos the soul could turn around and ascend back upwards but if it does you know it's going to gain or but if it does not right if it doesn't descend back upwards what's going to happen well it will you know gain knowledge of sin and it will get stuck in the material world if it lingers too long um, we have to understand that this is not a literal thing this is you know our souls are not from this you know, cosmological heaven called the world soul, and then we get trapped in the earth or trapped in bodies. That sounds a lot like Gnosticism. Sounds very similar to Gnosticism. Sounds a lot like Sathianism and sounds a lot like Valentinianism. Plotinus actually wrote against Gnosticism. And what, what I, the, way that, the way that I view the connection between the two is I actually view Gnosticism as a really, really, really literalistic mythologized version of neoplatonism with tons of myths in tons with tons of myths built around a literalist interpretation of neoplatonism and then you're going to add esotericism to it so there's secret codes within the gnostic texts that seems to break it down into instructions on how to ascend up this highly mythologized, um, very literalist, neoplatonic skeleton of the of Gnosticism. I am talking about, you know, Sethianism and Valentinianism. All right. Uh, actually, probably probably a lot more Sethianism. Uh, if, but I think Valentinianism could, I, I would say both of them, um, but a little bit more Sethian. All right. So this is, you know, um, so, so the soul, right, does not literally fall because of this, because, you know, the soul is not a physical being or object. The manner by which the soul gets stuck is that the soul projects itself into matter akin to seeing, you know, itself in a mirror. The mind has to awake to ascend to higher degrees along the chain of being. The soul has to see itself in higher degrees instead of in the material world. The soul has to look outwardly, causing a mirror image of everything or, or ca causing or causing it to look at a mirror image of everything or. Yeah, basically. The soul has to look outwardly, causing a mirror image of everything to kind of be projected, uh, including the soul, to appear in, in the matter. Okay, so this becomes intoxicating. So after the fall, the soul becomes obsessed with its mirror image, and the soul has, you know, emanated, meaning in this case that it has projected an image onto the material world, and the mind is now asleep. Um, so, you know, the, the goal is to ascend back upwards by studying, Neo, well, by studying Neoplatonic thought. Um, and seeing everything in unity, and you know, li listening to those, listening to those teachers, what they have to say about their philosophy. This isn't. We have to understand this isn't some you know initiate thing where, unlike Gnosticism, where you know we're going to be initiated into these higher ranks of, uh, you know, we're going to become Gnostic teleoi. We're going to be you know 
Gnostic initiates, and we're going to understand from whence um, our origin comes, which is, you know, the Ion Sophia, um, and then, you know, and uh, some sort of, you know, demiurge trapping us in a set of mud bodies, and then the the, the leaders of our, you know, religion are going to tell us the secrets. That's not the case here. Rather, you know, if we listen to philosophers, we can learn about their teachings on how to ascend or how to kind of psychologically ascend upwards by viewing everything in unity. So let's talk about influences really quickly because I know that like everyone else is, you know, obviously dying to say things after I've taken up a very long time speaking. But influences upon Christianity, Ismailism, and the Druze. So, you know, in the Druze flag as an example, you're even going to see each color is associated with different parts of this, you know, Drew of this, you know, um, of these of this emanational structure of Neoplatonism. Uh, you know, the Druze and um, in the Ismailis alike, they're going to attribute a attributes of God to certain parts of the Neoplatonic emanational structure. Influences upon Christianity, I think I've, I've made very clear, right? We have the one is the father, the divine mind is the soul, and the world soul is the Holy Spirit, right? During the Middle Ages, we're going to, you know, kind of have a very literalist view of the um, Neoplatonic structure, emanational structure, and we're going to invert that to create a map of reality. So matter, or probably more appropriately, the universe is the earth, and then you're going to have the stars, the planets, or the atmosphere, the planets, and the stars, and then God, who is the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are the world soul, the divine mind, and the one. Hell becomes equated with matter, which is the limit of reality. Okay? Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyone have any any further discussion you want, you know, talking about talking about this comparatively in respect to other religions or anything? Yeah, I just, I think it's a really interesting uh, sort of religion. Um, and, and, you know, I just, I, I, I find it really interesting how it's the root of uh, most to all re of modern religions in our current world, you know? Um, and honestly, I had no idea that, that Plato founded a religion. I, I knew he was a philosopher, but <clears throat> I didn't know he... Uh, or like well i mean he didn't found it but like you know it, it's it's based off of his theories you know and i actually i didn't know that i mean yeah the philosophy is super influential what i speculate is that the unknowability of god in islam i would speculate that that almost certainly has roots in neoplatonism my understanding is probably what happened was you know god of the old testament right this is very anthropomorphized it seems right my v and people back then had a very supernatural worldview right you're going to see paul explicitly say in his epistles this guy who i knew 14 years ago ascended into the third heaven and learned secret teachings there that's really supernatural right very supernatural world for people in those times, we're reading the book written about 300 to 100 years beforehand, and we're talking about sec our first century Palestinian Jews, the book of Enoch, right? Re very supernatural. At the time, people had a very supernatural worldview of, you know, literal seven heavens and so forth. Uh, or, or, sorry, I should say seven heavens was Mesopotamian idea, but most people believe in like multi-layer heavens. And they believe in highly anthropomorphized gods. Romans believed in highly anthropomorphized gods. And the Jews at the time would have believed in a highly anthropomorphized God. Um, in fact, uh, up, up until around either the first or second century, they would believe that, that their God, Yahweh, right? He, it was called the two powers theology in which God would actually, could actually be seen in basically two places at once in the Old Testament. An example would be him raining down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah as an example, which Yahweh appears in two places. One, one Yahweh 
is raining down fire while the other Yahweh um, does something else. So, and you, you can see that in many places in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so, this highly anthropomorphized view stops. This doesn't carry over into Islam. Why is that? My, my speculation is that the Christians started to adopt Neoplatonism, which they certainly, we have, a, it is indisputable that they adopted it, right? I've already given some examples of those certain theologians and, uh, you know, Pseudo-Dionysius, Maximus the Confessor, um, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Origen, and so forth. And then my, I, my, my, what I speculate is that, you know, Islam adopted this unknowability of God from the Christianity at the time, which, where did they get that from? Neoplatonism. So that is my speculation. Obviously, the Ismailis and the Druze and so forth, they're inspired by Neoplatonism. And I, we had the Baha'i interview today, right? And by the way, check that out on our podcast. Uh, uh, once that, you know, uh, once we, you know, plan the, plan the uh, release that one. So in, I would expect that, you know, even, even the Baha'i faith, which is a very rapidly going religion, the unknowability of God is, you know, linked to, Neo, to Neoplatonism. And I think that's super interesting as well, because that, um, uh, like like you were saying about like the unknowability of God and also um, you know the uh, specifically Yahweh and how um, he's presented as both loving and you know vengeful and whatnot that sort of relates to the modern um, the modern discussion among Christians of uh, Yahweh being you know their God uh, that sort of relates to the modern discussion of um, uh, especially the Old Testament Yahweh and um, how his wrath and vengeance um, in the Old Testament relates to the modern, more loving Yahweh and, you know, how that sort of relates to Jesus as well. And I would speculate that what actually really managed to open up the doors for Neoplatonic thought is God is not really present in the New Testament um, unless you're going to, you know, hold a Trinitarian worldview, which is what people held at the time. Uh, well, actually, not necessarily, because we, we talked about how uh, the last, uh, what his name is, I Iamblichus, correct, uh, Rylan? Iamblichus died in 325 CE. What, what happened in 325 CE? The First Council of Nicaea. What was adopted as, as, as the official doctrine of Christianity at that time? Well, that was the Trinity. That was adopted as the official um, doctrine. So... It's possible that there were, you know, non-Trinitarian uh, Christians beforehand, but but what I'm saying, right? And there obviously were, and there, um, but most of the church fathers, to my knowledge, were Trinitarian. But what I'm the point I'm trying to get at, without trying to get sidetracked, which I did, was if you look at the Old Testament God, he's quite prevalent. He's he's you know he's interfering at times with your interfering has a lot of connotation. He's intervening quite a bit okay whereas the god of the new testament jesus is performing all these miracles jesus is taking the spotlight in the new testament whereas in the old testament god gets all the praise jesus is the focal point of the new testament so god is god the father is pretty much absent from the new testament so that what, what i in, in my in from my reading of it so what i speculate is that you know I, I should say the gospels more specifically but what i speculate is that that absence of god in the gospels really allowed people to, you know, latch on to this Neoplatonic idea of a, you know, more um, imp impersonal God. But obviously, we have to understand is the people who are writing, who are integrating these Neoplatonic ideas, these people were, you know, Gentiles, these people were, uh, you know, they're, they're, they either they themselves or their parents 
had converted from or their ancestors relatively near. I mean, they had converted from you know some some sort of pagan religion uh, into cr- Christianity. So, but their cultural environment would be infused with Hellenistic thought, and Neoplatonism was Hellenistic thought. So it really helped to, um, or in many ways, is Hellenistic thought. It's certainly Greco-Roman, and helped to you know it certainly helped that the people who were integrating Neoplatonism were already familiar with the culture in which Neoplatonism arose. All right, I, I got something. This is kind of unrelated, but um, I just found this ironic because Neoplatonism obviously influenced Christianity. Um, but uh, um, a Christian figure known as uh, Justinian the Great or Justinian the First um, ordered the closure of the Academy of Athens in 529. Uh, and this was a major uh, hub of Neoplatonist thought. I just thought it was ironic that um, Christian forces closed um, the Academy of Athens, even though they heavily influenced Christianity. I just found that interesting. Yeah, Plotinus or Plotinus was a pa- was was a um, was was a was a pagan intellectual. You're going to see his belief is that well, these other gods exist, but they are emanations of the One. So. And he was also a critic of Christianity, like I said. So, you know, it's pos- certainly possible that these, you know, uh, these neo- Neoplatonists in that school were not exactly, you know, Christians themselves. They were either, you know, purely Neoplatonists or they had, you know, Plotinus's view, which is that God existed. God, there are the, mo- the monad, monad, or the one exists, but there are other gods, other, there are the pagan gods of our ancestors and our parents. They still uh, exist as well. Alrighty, everyone, this has been, you know, a research episode on Neoplatonism. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm Xavier. I'm Rylan. I'm Noah. I'm Balin. And stay tuned for planned future episodes.